In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Last spring, I was catching up with a friend of mine from high school and telling her about my project. And she said, you have to meet my friend Ola Kunle. Or Kunle, as his friends call him. He struggled to decide between medicine and hip-hop dance before making a jump that would combine the two. His dad had grown up very poor in Nigeria. And as you'll hear from the conversation, it took a lot to get his family to the United States. Kunle told me his sister was chosen to be the lawyer of the family, and he was said to be the doctor. And that's what he's supposed to be. Becoming a doctor is what his parents wanted for him. Teaching hip-hop dance and dancing nonstop, 24-7, is what he wanted to be doing. What are you supposed to do with your life? Do what your parents or others want? Or take a stab at, I don't know, hip-hop dance? He may not be a household name, but that fundamental struggle to figure out who you should be living for and what your jump should be for, and if that should serve you or for your family or others, I think it's a really important conversation and a really good question to try to answer. So I hope you turn down the music for this because it's worth it. And then you go find Kunle and take one of his classes because I promise you, when you get through this conversation, you're going to want to go hang out with this guy. I want to introduce you to my friend Kunle in our conversation on the When to Jump podcast. Can't wait to hear what you think. Oh, Mike, thanks you for having me. Um, looking forward to talking uh, and having a, another great conversation. <laughs> <laughs> one of, I think we're on 10 maybe. Or yeah, <laughs> yeah. The inside joke, which I guess is not an inside joke, is like the first time I met you, I was like, oh man, I'm working on this book project. You got to just, you know, do you have like 20 minutes? And you're probably like, oh yeah. This guy, you know, he just needs 20 minutes. Um, that was like two years and like 40 different two-hour versions of your story ago. Um, Kule has generously shared his story for the book that I mentioned um, and also was one of our keynotes for Jump Club 2 New York City, which was in April and our annual festival where you shared a little bit of your dancing as well as, you know, the personal side of your story that we'll dive into deeper. So I appreciate you coming back and, and sharing it with our audience here on the podcast. Yeah, I'm happy to be here and hopefully new people are hearing the, the story for the first time. Yeah, I, I hope so as well. Otherwise, it's just me feeling like yeah. I get another <laughs> take on your story, which is which is okay too. Uh, so Kunle is the executive director of Everybody Dance Now, which is a national nonprofit organization that provides free hip-hop dance programs to young people who could otherwise not afford access. Um, but let's, you know, let's start back in the beginning. Uh, your parents, as, as you told me before, they grew up in Nigeria. What was that like for them, and what impact did that have on the rest of the family? Oh, man. Um, yeah, my parents growing up in Nigeria, I think, set the course for um, me re- realizing how much they had sacrificed And so to give you some context, they were poor in Africa in a small village, which meant they were farmers and they farmed to live. So they didn't farm to sell. They just farmed so they could eat that day. And uh, it was my father's decision that he didn't want that life for his future family at a really young age of five. 
um, he wasn't going to be a farmer. He was going to go to school because that he saw education as the way out. And so for him, he would go to school. Um, he, had, he didn't have the money to actually pay to go to school. So he would just like peek into the window of the classroom. Um, and so the teacher would see him and have a student go chase him away. And then he'd wait a little bit and then he'd go back and just keep doing that. Like go to school, look in the window until they notice, get chased away. And um, eventually the teacher went to his mom and said, you have to find a way to send him to school. So she went and borrowed money that she knew she couldn't repay and sent my dad to school. And it was that decision kind of helped him to get go to university and then go um, get a scholarship to NYU and come to New York and actually after graduating, having enough money to bring my, my mom and my two sisters over. And so um, it kind of, for him, it really set in his mind that like, education is the key. So we were pushed really, really hard from the time we were five, six to like, we had like schedule set on like when we were gonna study. Um, we knew that we were gonna do like extracurricular so that like, you know, we'd be well-rounded. <laughs> so when it came time to apply to schools, uh, we'd have more options. And so that was like, that's how it affected the family. like. Everyone was, was pushed to make good grades and to pursue higher education. And I think you mentioned this in your, in your case study in the book, but it seems like that is typical of, of, a, of an immigrant threat. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because I, I think and it made sense at the time, I think, of the way the career market worked is that it just education provided stability. And I think the world's changing now to where you know, my dad's realizing it's not necessarily the case, but definitely I think that's a lot of immigrants, um, you know, they see education as like that degree will make sure that their kids don't starve, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I, my dad never wanted me to experience what he had to growing up. And yeah. Yeah. And I think you described almost going around the, the kitchen table and it's like, okay, you'll be the lawyer, you'll be the doctor. Like, was that truly how it was? Was that what a career <laughs> path looked like? Uh, it was just, uh, it was like undertones of that. So it was never said like, you have to be, but it was just like, we sacrificed for you. So yeah. We would hear my dad's story every Thanksgiving every Christmas <laughs> throughout even you know when we went back this this past year we just heard the story and it was just like you know we sacrificed for you like you sacrificed so you could make it yeah. you know and making it is succeeding and making it is being successful and so yeah so I, I really had that pressure of my dad and also being in science and in medicine being a professor of physical therapy my mom being a nurse and me being the last kid who uh it's always a pride of especially Nigerian families like to have a doctor in the household and like I was the last chance. <laughs> <laughs> there wasn't oh my, one behind oh my, you. Oh yeah, oh my my three older siblings managed to skirt around that. <laughs> but yeah, I was their last their last hope. <laughs> so so you you start to follow the thread of medicine and first you end up going to Harvard, which is no small feat. I think it was actually before Harvard, right, where you discovered dance. Like, how does dance come in the picture? Oh man, dance first came in the picture, not in a serious sense, just uh I was going to prom my senior year, and I was like, I have no idea how to dance. I should probably figure out how to do something. <laughs> this is in high school. This is in high school, yeah. <laughs> uh, so never any intention of, like, I'm going to be a serious dancer, but, like, I should probably know how to move at in some fashion so I don't look ridiculous. My parents always had music playing in the household, mostly African. Um, but I think just having that and understanding the rhythms and, and just having it in the background, like, when I heard and saw dance together with the music, it made sense to me the first time. But I don't think I actually started actually physically moving until it's like time to get ready for prom. That was my, that was my push. <laughs> As a, so here's something I don't know the answer to. What was the dance move you pulled out at prom? So you oh, didn't know how to man. dance. Oh, um, man. 
I mean, I have a basic two-step down. <laughs> <laughs> I start out with with that, and then um, I used to watch to get because there was no YouTube at the time. Um, I used to watch Genuine and Usher, and I try to pull like glides, you know. Um, sure. So because I thought that really looked cool, so like the moonwalk and and the, the backslide and stuff like that. Wow. Yeah. So it's almost a, a good thing that you ran out of dance moves at prom because you then fortuitously found a dance club at Harvard. Definitely. That's what it just made it made sense. Both when I went to the freshman activities fair and they had like two hundred student groups. And I was just like, you know what? I, I have never had an opportunity because there was no dance in my school. I should try it, you know? Um, I never thought I'd take it seriously, but hey, here's an opportunity to have free dance classes, be around other dancers. Uh, so I had signed up, and then later, my friend had taken me to an event at MIT, which is just like more like the street dancing. And I just saw like the community, and I heard the music, and I just was amazed by what people were doing. And I felt like, I felt like a foreigner, but I felt completely at home. In like the same second in that like I have no idea what these people are doing but these are my people yeah. <laughs> so that was like yeah the kind of second awakening to dance yeah this is something that came to me yesterday actually I was talking to someone about the project and they're like well what do you do if you don't know what your passion is and what I always say is well follow what makes you interested in something or what makes you curious about something and for you at this point you had no background in dance. Is that the beginning of finding out what your passion is in some way? Is that the way to go? Yeah, uh, yeah I think it is. Uh, I think it's listening to yourself because there was an inkling of like, I probably shouldn't. Like, I wasn't actually getting joy from, from track and from cross country. I wasn't getting any joy from it. And I had this inkling like, I should try something different. You know, and I think we... Um, I think we don't really take into context how long life is <laughs> and how much chance we have to try something. And so I think when you have that opportunity, it's really just listening um, to your own intuition, exploring enough things so you can find that moment where you connect. Yeah. You know, because it wasn't that moment I signed up, it's a moment I actually saw it in action that was like, this makes sense to me. Got I had no idea the first step <laughs> <laughs> on how to do what these people were doing because they were some amazing dancers. But I'm, I belong here. Wow. And, yeah. and then what happens from there? It's that you start to live this double life. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. So I bugged my friend when I saw this. I was like, what, what style are they doing? Like, really just amazing because it was just like an illusion. You know, so people like, they look like mechanical and they're doing like waves and all these things with their bodies I didn't think were possible. And so my, my friend Brian, who took me, I'm like, what are they doing? It's like, oh, this popping. I'm like you have to teach me that. <laughs> <laughs> you need that in my. You don't arsenal. know it yet, but you're gonna teach me. Yeah. Uh, so I, I bugged him um, and kept on bugging him. And then second semester of my freshman year, he starts the Harvard Breakers organization, which is like the first street dance organization at Harvard. Um, not surprising. <laughs> so him and two breakers started it, and that's why I started getting more into practicing like freestyle. And meanwhile, you're taking pre med classes. Yeah. You're going home uh, for holidays. <laughs> you're not telling your parents that you're dancing, right? Right. I don't tell. For I think it's a year and a half or two, I just maintain my my work, my studies. Um, if I'm not studying, and I'm dancing, you know, even if it's like one in the morning and like I'm just taking a break from a problem set, I'm gonna take a like 15 minute study break and like just dance, you know, because uh, I just couldn't um, get it out of my system. You know, so on the subways, going back and forth, I'd just be practicing. I know I look crazy to people on the subway, <laughs> but I didn't care at that point. I just wanted to dance. So, um, yeah, it took up, like, I feel like 80% of my time outside of classes and studying was, was dancing. But it was a hard thing because what, what sacrifice was, like, you know, sleep, I think, yeah. <laughs> yeah. in that process. But I 
feel like I could always catch up on that later. <laughs> <laughs> Life's long. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I think that's an important part of your story is that it wasn't that you you didn't go from liking dance to just going for it in some big way. It was these, right. these small little steps, right? Right. Right. Definitely. Because it was just knowing that I liked it was the first thing and knowing that it was part of who I was. Even before I started dancing, I think dance was who I was a dancer. I just didn't realize it until I saw it. But I think it's realizing it and then just in that meantime, because it was a long trajectory even from when I started to where I am now, just keeping things you love like in your life, I think is really key. You'll never know what opportunity comes up. And I never had an intention of what I'm going to do with dance from the time I started. I had no clue. Yeah. <laughs> I just loved it. And I think that's what we realized. We, people don't always find the connection to, hey, I like this thing. How do I make this thing what I do? That isn't always as clear, but if you keep that thing you love in your life, then the opportunities will will make themselves appear if you're open to them. Describe at what point does everything come to a head and you've got to break it to mom and dad. You know, I really love this dance thing. Do they just do they hear you in your room dancing? Was that it? Or no, I, okay. I, maybe that was in my own music. imagination. Yeah. <laughs> they, my story for for a film audience that I'm already imagining. Uh, no, they hear the music, but I always play music in my room, whether or not I was dancing dance or not. Right. But okay. I would close the door if I was dancing. Oh, uh, okay. I wasn't. So I don't know what they thought I was doing if they knew. Uh, but I finally let them know, maybe sophomore year the end of my sophomore year because um, we had like a DVD of the show um, and so my brother funny enough my brother also started dancing uh, in in college your dad and must so... be like you got to be <laughs> kidding me and so he had said like oh here's a show uh, his group is called Simpo from, from Princeton and he's like oh here's a show we're doing and uh, he showed them I was like oh man I guess I gotta show them like what I'm doing you know so I showed them like our DVD and they're like oh this is great you know but Remember to keep your studies up, you know. Um, I think it finally came to a head when I think I knew probably from senior year that I was leaning away from going to medical school. Uh, I still went through the process, still went through the MCAT, still went through uh, the first round of applications. <laughs> and then just told my parents, I think, to make sense for them, hey, I want to take some time off and work in a hospital to realize is this actually what I want to do for the next whoever knows how many years? And so they were actually okay with that, me taking time off and working, you know, in healthcare and medicine. And so after working a year in the hospital, I worked at Mass General two years, but in the first year, I immediately knew, like, I can't do this. <laughs> I can't go back to school for another four years and four years of training. And then because I don't love what I'm doing, it's okay, it's interesting, but my heart wasn't it. And that's such a neat strategy you pulled in the, okay, let me buy some time here. You could have easily just started applying, like finished the application process, gone into med right. school and said, forget about it, which seems like that would have been short-sighted perhaps. Right. And instead you do something that pleases your parents to some degree, right? It's right. it's MGH, Mass General Hospital, big deal. Right. It's still on the path to go into med school if you so choose. But then it seems like every ounce of you is dancing outside of work you were saying you'd go from uh from being at the lab to dancing straight away you were you yeah. were skipping dinner right i mean it was yeah because it was uh i didn't even know the studio that i would end up taking class and teaching class was maybe like a 15 minute walk from the hospital so yeah i'd either like grab a snack on the way or just skip and you'd go straight to class depending on when the class ended um yeah so i'd go from work straight to dance and then i'd go home you know, so it was I think the it was actually easier with the nine to five, nine to six job to make more room for dance. So it actually was good for me too. And that created more space for me to go and travel on the weekends to New York and things like that because with 
college, you can always be studying, but kind of work, I could separate work from my outside life. Yeah. And then as you learn that med school isn't necessarily for you, and you're also learning, though, that professional dancing isn't something you, you were set on either, <laughs> right? Right. It, right, right. Uh, in teaching, <clears throat> I realized, and I saw people who taught professionally, like they just teach at a bunch of studios. Um, in Massachusetts, there's not as many or not as high volume as in New York, so people would teach all over the place. And I'm like, I can't. I can't do that. I maybe teach like once or twice a week and I'm already tired because I try to give a lot of myself in the classroom. And I'm like, I can't, I can't just teach because I think it takes the joy out of dancing for me. And I saw people going to LA and going to New York to do like the audition sort of circuit. Like, oh, can I go be a backup dancer for someone? And that also never really appealed to me because I'm more and more like doing my own style. And so I couldn't imagine myself like doing the same routine night after night, yeah. <laughs> dancing behind somebody. And those are the main two things that people dan did with dance at the time. Yeah. <laughs> so <clears throat> I think it was, it was nervous for my, for my parents also because I didn't really have, when we finally had the conversation, I didn't really have an alternative. Like, I am going to do this. This yeah. is successful. I was like, I, I'm just going to keep dancing my life. I have no idea what doors will open. I know the two main doors that opens for most people isn't an option for me, but I love it so much I can't let go of it. And then you end up going to another graduate program. Um, because I was doing HIV AIDS research, a master in our hospital, and so my favorite part is talking to the patients and just hearing more about their background. And, and that's when I started to see a correlation between <clears throat> where they're coming from and the health outcomes that they were seeing. So the people that had support systems, that had the knowledge, that had the things around them that made up keeping their health easier, they'd be back in the clinic like maybe once or twice a year. But people that were kind of recovering uh, from drug abuse or um, you know they had broken homes and things like that, they're in the clinic much more often. And so I just became much more interested in that and asked one of the doctors one day, I was like, oh, is there something that actually looks at like preventing this stuff? <laughs> Yeah. And then he's like, oh, it's like public health. And that was like open a world for me of like, oh, there's actually uh, the thing I'm interested in is actually, actually how do I look at the health of communities as a whole? Um, that's when it kind of opened up the, the graduate research in terms of thinking, oh, I can actually study public health, which is much more in tune with my holistic thinking of people and helping people. Again, it hadn't quite merged like how does that work with dance, but it kind of made me see that there was a wider world out there. And that leads you to the next step. Yeah, yeah. And that leads me to, well, first, I was still in Boston, and my girlfriend at the time, uh, wife now, had moved to New York because she was in finance. And so uh, kind of as I was ending my research in Mass General, uh, I had been commuting from Boston to New York every weekend, and I was just taking its toll on me. Um, and so I was like, I should probably look to apply to graduate schools in New York and also work in New York. Um, so that's when I studied public health um, at Columbia. And I realize when you're interested in something, how much it doesn't seem like work. <laughs> Studying uh, community health uh, and epidemiology, and then eventually getting hired by Columbia Medical Center uh, to do research around pulmonary medicine in African-American communities and trying to think of like what are the factors that are influencing um, asthma in particular in these communities. And let's not forget dance. Yes. Meanwhile, <laughs> Meanwhile. you're still taking like a bus. Yeah. I remember you saying you went to D.C. on the weekends. You, yeah. you were in a commercial. <laughs> you, you're still dancing. Yeah. But <laughs> how does that boil up? In, like, oh, man. I don't know how I kept it all up. Um, yeah. A bunch of projects came up in, in that span of, I guess it's been like 
been in New York six years. Uh, when I first moved to New York, funny enough, there's a company in Boston, Harmonix, that asked me, like, hey, you're still in Boston, right? And I'm like, no, no, I just moved to New York. It's like, well, well we had, we came up with this, this dance game called Dance Central for the Xbox 360 Connect. And, you know, it had great reviews, so we're actually coming out with a more series, and we had you as a dancer. I'm like, oh, I'm not, I'm not in Boston anymore. It's like, oh, okay, it's okay, we'll pay for, like, a train down or, or a flight down, and we'll, we'll bring you in maybe once every couple months, and you'll come choreograph for the game. So, again, <laughs> something I had not planned on at all. And, uh, you know, a few months after moving to New York, I'm going back to Boston wearing, like, a motion capture suit and choreographing for this dance video game. While, <laughs> while studying, like, underrepresented, underserviced, like, communities that need healthcare and Flatbush. Right, right, wow. right. Yeah, so I'd go, like, on the weekends, or I'd take a day off of work and just go and, and choreograph and then come back. Oh, and, my gosh. Um, you know, I got to go to... Japan a couple times, once when I was in Boston, once in New York, to, to go and compete in some international dance competitions. So you're just not letting it go? No, time. no, because then um, what kept me in dance was the dance itself, the love for dance, but the community around dance that it built. And so my friend, you know, my wife, everyone I kind of met through dance, and we shared this thing that made our bond stronger than just anyone else I met, you know, through work or just through friends of friends. And so that kept me um, really, really passionate about it. And I think that also helped me think about, wow, the thing I'm actually getting from dance is not just dance itself. And what if there's something to this thing I'm doing that can impact? And that brings us to a very fortuitous, was it a phone call from the person <laughs> who taught you dance years earlier at Harvard? Or something? It was like, it was. how does this all come to a head? I mean, this is like still, I've listened to this story like a million times. Yeah, looking back, it makes it makes sense, but it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But it, it kind of proves the theory that if you if you know what you want or have an idea of what you want and you just keep that in the atmosphere, like things are working in your favor that you don't know. So I couldn't imagine that it would have taken me so long to find something that I was passionate about doing career-wise. You know, getting to my like my 30s, I'm like, I still don't know what I want to do. <laughs> uh, and then I get a call from, it wasn't the person that it taught me dance, but it was my best friend that we started dancing in Boston at the same time in the same style. And he had come to New York, met a girl, also a dancer, and they moved out to the West Coast. Uh, she danced in the industry for many years, uh, traveled, toured, did the whole thing, and got burnt out of like the industry life. And so she randomly searched on Craigslist one day and found this position for Everybody Dance Now as program director. Yeah, so she, she, she had applied, she started working there. And then as she was working there and, and thinking about, okay, what is the organization missing? And so she asked her husband, like, who do you know is connected in New York in the dance community? It's like, oh, just reach out to Kuma, see what he's up to. And so she gives me a call and kind of just plans to see, like, hey, this is what I'm doing. This is an organization. Like, immediately my ears perk up, like, oh, it's really cool. And then I was like, hey, can I start this in New York? She's like, yeah, and, and you know what? We're actually looking for an executive director. <laughs> <laughs> like I know you. I was like, I just started a job at Columbia Medical Center. I don't think I can leave after a few weeks. You know, she's like, oh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll visit. We'll visit this at another time. She kind of just kept hinting. You know, it was this time I had the process. I think this is the thing. Is this the thing? <laughs> if it is the thing, how do I make this sustainable? So I had a little bit of time to process before having to make the decision or making the decision personally to like give notice at my work and say, hey, I found the thing I'm supposed to be doing. And I love what I'm doing here, but this isn't what I'm supposed to be doing. 
And how hard is that? I mean, it seems on paper like, wow, everything comes together, but it wasn't yeah. an easy decision. And how did you come to say, <clears throat> yeah. I'm going to do it and, and give that notice and tell your parents? Like, that's a really big deal. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I guess the, it was a little bit easier at that, at that time because my parents knew that I wasn't going to med school. I think that was a harder conversation. I think it was also hard for them uh, to know that I was leaving a more still secure career, you know, um, that has some trajectory to it and had stability to it and had, you know, health insurance and all this kind of stuff. All those things. Um, I think the, the hard decision was thinking about what is the actual sustainability of this because they were, at the time, fundraising for my role and um, still didn't have, like, the funds needed to bring me on in a full-time capacity, but I knew it needed a full-time effort for me. And so it was a conversation with my wife. It was a conversation of, like, was the runway we have? Like, how can we think about this if there's no money coming in you know uh, if things are harder you know um what is the room that we have for this and i think it was having all that on paper and laying it out what are the pros what are the cons and then thinking about okay what is the opportunity and is the opportunity worth anything bad that could happen and then what is my ability to recover from anything like what's the worst thing that happens the company goes under or something and i realize okay this is not my role you know but um it was worth the it was worth the risk, and I think assessing it maybe gives you comfort. I think also knowing, hey, I'm, I think I'm old. I feel old, but I'm only at the time thirty one. Um, you're coming on thirty one, and there's so much more time to life. I have time to recover if all goes wrong. So it was a combination of knowing what could happen, knowing that I had room, knowing it wouldn't be the end of the world if the worst case scenario happened. And so at that point, I felt comfortable. Um, especially knowing what laid ahead and the opportunity and the potential of the opportunity that I couldn't miss up on it. Yeah. yeah. It sounds like the most important thing was just keeping up what you cared about in some capacity every day, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's that. Um, I think we we have a tendency to lose that when we think about work and we think about our lives. I don't think we give ourselves much room to play, much room to enjoy, because I don't think anyone who's in their late 20s or 30s hasn't come across something they enjoy doing. Whether it be rock climbing, whether it be tennis, uh, whether it be um, I don't know, trading cards <laughs> or you know, board games or whatever it might be, there's something that you enjoy doing and I think if we make more time for that then we'd also see that there are opportunities around those things you know they seem silly i think they seem like games like dancing is a fun thing but there are opportunities around those fun things um and just because we let them go we don't actually get those opportunities because we're not actively doing the thing when someone comes around looking for someone who's actually doing that not to mention the people that sounds like you started to just come across by following where dance would take you in these different communities and these competitions and those are the people that would end up bringing this opportunity to you around everybody dance now yeah yeah definitely and, and again it all works in hindsight where i felt after this transition like man i wasted <laughs> i wasted my 20s right i hadn't I hadn't heard about this organization hadn't been able to come on board and start it and everything like oh man that was a waste when i think about it i was actually building up my name and my reputation in the street dance community and building up my my skills in connecting with communities so by the time I actually came around and took over um, as ex- executive director, we already had a network of dancers we could reach out to and a network of, of people that could advocate for our work and could support us. And so it was thinking like all of this was in preparation 
for that and not feeling so much like oh, I regret not <laughs> not seeing this sooner. Yeah, you can always <clears throat> you can always come back to the stable thing, and that's why it's stable, you know. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, I can always go back to it. You know, I, I never would. <laughs> now, <laughs> um, yeah, I think we limit ourselves for sure in thinking about what we can withstand in terms of uncertainty. And so was, I think that's that's what keeps people from, from jumping, yeah. that uncertainty. You just go in with faith. I think that's the main thing. <laughs> and I think without that faith in, you know, um, in yourself, in the universe, uh, or what have you, you will never take that step. But the moment you say, I'm okay, and I can make it through whatever comes, then you will never kind of make that that leap i say that and i there there's days where it was, it was scary thinking like am i gonna be okay <laughs> where i'm like i have no i came in with no experience in nonprofit management no leadership experience in terms of running an organization um or running a national organization and i had to say i'm gonna be okay you know i have the faith that i'll be okay and and people will come into life to, to help figure it out and I think you're a bit modest, but it's been more than okay for everybody to dance now right. in the last few years. What's yeah. w- just describe the impact you're making because it's truly astounding. Man, um, yeah, I, I do like to be modest. I think because <laughs> I I don't think I'm doing. It. I think I'm just guiding a process that has already been happening. Pretty much what I'm doing is is what the community helped build for me, which was my self esteem and, and my confidence in myself and my community. I'm just trying to provide those those pa- those places for it to be incubated incubated in uh in low income communities. And so we launched in New York um it's a year and a half now. Seems like a long time. <laughs> uh and I remember we started with just two classrooms in the spring of two thousand sixteen. And I looked up at the end of this past semester and it's like we're in twenty five classes a week going all the way from the Bronx to Far Rockaway in terms of where we're providing programming and we're serving like eight hundred kids. You know, in our in our first year programming in New York, and it's just like I know how that happened. <laughs> I look back and I remember calls and like, oh, can you have class here and class here? And I remember like, oh yeah, we can do this, we can do this. Like sorting it out. I remember that, but I look up and it's like, wow. You know, you you had every reason not to jump. You know, you came from a family where they would have been so proud if you had just you know stayed put on that path towards medicine. Right. And and uh, whether you're an immigrant that's listening to this or whether you're just a person with strict parents or there's um, some sort of social pressure to, to not kind of pull on that thread of whatever your passion may be, why is it important to just to kind of see what that looks like and, and take that jump ultimately? There's no doubt in my mind, if I had stayed on the path, I could have done the work. You know, I could have, I've done the sciences, I've done the math, I've done all that kind of stuff. And I could have gone to medical medical school and and I could have done okay and I know for certain my parents would have been proud but I wouldn't have been proud of myself and I think that's what you have to come with if you're coming from a family where there's a lot of pressure you're coming from just your own thinking of you have to be accepted by people around you at the end of the day you only have yourself to answer to and so there's a difference now when I go to sleep and when I wake up and know that I'm spending my time and my effort a lot more time and effort than I think I've ever spent on anything but there's so much more fulfillment because I can look at myself at the end of the day and know that I've lived true to who I am and I think that it made the jump necessary there's no way I couldn't have jumped (laughs) Um, because I just wanted to look at myself at the end of my life and think 
I did what I wanted to do and I tried out whether it failed, whether it succeeded. Uh, I'm I'm happy that I got the chance to realize that rather than rather than ending up at the end of your life and thinking, oh, what if I had done that? Oh, this would have been cool if I did that. So um, think about yourself first. It might seem selfish. It might seem <laughs> uh, counterintuitive not to think of family and friends. But when it comes to um, your decision and the impact you want to leave on the world, you have to you have to do that. We will end on that. Thank you so much for participating in yet another interview with me. Yeah, um, I look forward to the next one. <laughs> I always appreciate you sitting down. Huge thanks to Olakunle for telling us a story that I think we can all relate to, whether we dance well or not. If you want to check out Everybody Dance Now and learn more, visit their website, everybodydancenow.org. If you'd like to get more involved with the When to Jump community, Visit whentojump.com or find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all that stuff, at whentojump. That's the handle. We're starting a voice memo feature with our podcast. So if you've got a jump that you want to share, we're starting a feature to help you share it. Take a voice memo, email whentojumppodcast, all one word, at mcmillan.com. That's whentojumppodcast at mcmillan.com. Take a voice note, tell us what you're doing, send it in and you may be featured. Let's listen to one of the jumps now that's been shared. My name is Yuval Lerner. Uh, I grew up in Vancouver, Canada, and my jump was switching careers from accounting into a financial and moving to San Francisco, and it's been great. I'm Mike Lewis, and I'll see you next week. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.